reading of the scriptures. I'll be reading from a selection this morning. Romans 13, 1 to 5. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be fear from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And from John 18:36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And from Matthew 5, 38 to 44. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it has been said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And from Mark 8, 34 to 35. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And lastly, from 1 Corinthians 10, 24, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. This is the word of the Lord. I traveled to Israel-Palestine for the first time earlier this year. And part of that tour took me to the northern borders of Israel with Lebanon and Syria to understand the geopolitical situation there, at least from Israel's perspective. Now, the group had us participate in a simulation where Israeli intelligence had identified a shipment of guided missiles from Iran that, whose ultimate destination would have been the border of Lebanon and Israel. And our tour group was divided into a number of different government agencies, and we were tasked to recommend a course of action based on the information that we had. Now, these missiles had traveled from Iran and were currently sitting in a uh, remote warehouse in Syria, preparing for shipment into Lebanon, where tracking them would inevitably be difficult. Now, these rockets would likely end up uh, together with a stockpile of arms in the populated border towns of Lebanon, uh, to, to eventually be used against Israel. Now, so the, here's the dilemma presented to us. 
Does Israel use its advanced military technology to preemptively take out the shipment in this unpopulated warehouse in Syria, or risk losing track of it once it enters Lebanon, where it would be difficult to destroy once it was amongst a residential neighborhood? And in case you're not familiar with the situation, uh, Israel has no diplomatic relations with Lebanon or Syria because both of them don't recognize Israel's sovereignty. So meaningful negotiation is very, very difficult. It's a tough call for a room full of pastors on a Holy Lands tour trip. Each agency, you know, in our groups deliberated and we were asked to make a recommendation and ultimately each of us voted according to our own conscience individually. Now, as someone who has ident identifies with the peace tradition of the Mennonites, this was tremendously difficult to endorse personally. Yet, with my government hat on temporarily, you know, we were called to serve these people where this risk was seemed very real. Now, ultimately, though I was one of the few that voted against doing the strike, the group voted pr to preemptively strike in Syria. But that led to a series of retaliations where both Israel and Leban Leban Lebanese citizens were, uh, civilians, were killed. And though this was completely a simulation, in that room, we all felt the heaviness of that decision. The situation raised a number of questions for me. How do I live out pacifist ideals in a situation like this, where there's no medium for medium meaningful negotiation? And when a threat to safety is likely imminent and very real. And is there a difference between living out these pacifist convictions personally in individual relationships versus as a government representative? What would you have done in that position? You know, we were continuing our uh, making our way through this Just Relationships and a Just World series. Today we turn our attention to this idea of how do we Jesus followers engage with war and violence? And throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been two main approaches advocated. One is pacifism, and one is what is known as just war. And both approaches draw from scripture, scriptures that Julia read for us today. So we're going to walk through this. It'll be a bit of a history. So there'll be the history, the tension, and the trajectory. So there's a history, a trajectory, a tension, and the trajectory. So pacifism... Distinctly, mark, distinctly marked the first three centuries of Christianity. As Christians and Jews were considered marginal people, groups that were persecuted for their faith, living in the Roman Empire. As such, without cultural or political power, Christian theologians and leaders were uh, united in their condemnation of violence and killing and military service all the way up until 300 A.D., Drawing from Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes, like Matthew chapter 5, the Gospels, uh, the early Christians took these Gospels to heart and, did not, and they did not hold social power, they did not hold political influence, and so they viewed this path of nonviolence uh, not only as integral to living out their faith, but also as a matter of survival for them. There are a few, now these, but there are, these are the concerns that we see show up in the letters in the New Testament, like 1 Peter and 2 Peter and in the book of Revelations, where the authors encourage the church to continue in faithfulness to Jesus and to live peaceably even amongst persecution. 
Though this world's superpower loomed over them, Jesus called them to live faithfully for a different kind of kingdom, to live faithfully for God's kingdom. All while Caesar demanded absolute allegiance to him, not only as emperor of Rome, but also as the God of Rome. Persecution and even martyrdom for their faith were very real possibilities. Yet they maintained this position of pacifism regardless. In AD 314, things changed. Constantine took over the Roman Empire and made Christianity the official religion. And so Christianity began to take a different role in wider society. They gained new acceptance and social power. Christianity began to take on Rome's view that anyone who did not speak Latin or read Latin, which was the common language of the time in Rome, was considered, quote, a barbarian. So when anyone attacked the Roman Empire, Christianity also views it, viewed itself as being under attack. So early Christian thinkers like Augustine and other theologians began to develop a, a theology of how to respond and what was, uh, what was the role of society, Christians in society. And this became the default position for the Christian faith all the way up until the Middle Ages. This worked well when the interests of Christianity aligned somewhat with the interests of the state. Now, they drew from texts like Romans 13 that Paul, uh, that Paul writes to the church in Rome. Their, their Christians began to develop an understanding of how God might use the civil authority and government and the sword accompanying it to bring judgment on evil and wrongdoers. And through texts like these, uh, and though texts like these happened, there were texts like Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes and the previous chapter in Romans chapter 12 that instructed Jesus' followers not to take personal revenge for wrongs done against them and return evil for evil. But yet, yet here Romans 13 seems to suggest that it is right for Christians even to turn punishment over to civil authorities who have the responsibility to punish evil and to protect its citizens from threats. Just war advocates also turn to other texts like these uh, coming up on the screen in Luke chapter 3, verse 14, when John the Baptist speaks to these soldiers who are newly converts to the faith, he doesn't ask them to leave the military. He says to carry out their duties with integrity and with uh, fairness. They also look to John chapter 18, verse 36, where Jesus indicates that defense in earthly kingdoms requiring the sword may be expected. But in his case, the kind of kingdom he was building wasn't going to depend on the use of swords. And so through texts like these, we begin to see how this theology has come to known as just war developed. And in this view, there are situations of injustice. There are situations where evil is present that demand even a military response when safety and the common good are threatened. In fact, some theologians, including a Mennonite pacifist theologian, a very influential one named uh, John Howard Yoder, identified just war as a form of Christian peacemaking. Just war can actually be a form of Christian peacemaking in his, in his view. And other notable theologians throughout Christian history, including Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and in 20th century, thinkers like Reinhold Niebuhr and C.S. Lewis all carried on Augustine's 
political theology that recognized this role of the government or civil authority as, as ordained or created by God in order to maintain society, order in society. Now, to preserve this order and serve the common good, Christians who are part of the society were also invited to support civil authority, which also included the possibility of military service. Now, over time, proponents of just war developed a series of criteria to determine this decision, um, to, to, to inform a decision whether to enter war was justified, but also in the course of engaging in war, how to do that justly. Now, I know maybe in a room full of Mennonite tradition, this might be a little bit jarring, but here's the thing. In, 16th century, the, the, in the 16th century, historic peace church movements, like the, also known as the Anabaptists, made up of Men Amish and Mennonite and Hutterite and Brethren and Quaker traditions, they all began to question this just war as a living out of faith, the Christian faith. And they began to return to this first century idea of pacifism. And they did so primarily in response to what they viewed as unscriptural practices in the Roman Catholic Church at the time, as well as a conviction to return to following scripture at all costs, even when it was at odds with the wider society around them. WCF, Washington Community Fellowship, is a community that's connected to this peace tradition through our affiliation with the Mennonite Church. As you can see in this very quick history, faithful and thoughtful Christians throughout the ages have attempted to reconcile the reality of evil and violence with this reality of God's kingdom and how to live faithfully in it. And that's something we try to do here at WCF as a community. Though we are affiliated with the peace tradition, this does not mean that if you hold a position of just war or if you serve in the military, that you are not welcome here. We view these differences as opportunities to deepen and widen our view of what it means to live and serve Jesus, live for Jesus and serve Jesus in bringing peace to this world. As Jesus followers, we acknowledge that there are a series of tensions that we live in. We live for a kingdom that is here, but it's not quite here yet. For the past 2,000 years, ever since Jesus uh, pointed out in his ministry with his most often preached message, which is, see, God's kingdom is here. See, God's kingdom is here. See, God's kingdom is here. We witness God's kingdom being here when Jesus heals broken bodies, when he opens blind eyes, and when he values and affirms the role of women and children and those who are on the margins of society. That's when we see God's kingdom is here. But we also know that God's kingdom isn't quite fully here yet. Injustice still remains because evil and brokenness and selfishness still remain in our world. So we live in this period of in-between, in between a, a, a deeply unjust world and a fully just world, in between this presence of evil and violence and the future fulfillment of true peace and flourishing, in between the problematic and imperfect expressions of love that we can do in this present life and the perfection of love in eternity. All of these are in-betweens, between the biggest in-between, which is the in-between Jesus' first arrival and Jesus' future arrival. 
And so we must recognize the limitations of the peace that is possible in this world. Doesn't mean we, won't, we don't work for it, but as pacifists or as just war advocates, we humbly acknowledge the limitations of our views. For pacifists, peace and flourishing is achieved through nonviolent action. Pacifism involves action. Pacifism with an F is not the same as passivism with a V, which is doing nothing. Pacifism is deliberate, non-violent action in the face of evil, motivated by love of neighbor and love for those who are suffering, and motivated by a desire to, to witness to God's truth and power here in this world. Pacifism is not passive towards injustice. It insists on resisting injustice through nonviolent action. Last week, I attended a book reading from uh, Andre Henry, who recently released this book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. It's a personal reflection of his fight for black lives as a black man while growing up in a multicultural church in the South. And at this event, he pointed out something uh, the important that caught my ear. He says, the importance of militant, nonviolent action. I was like, wow, that's an oxymoron. But, he, but how can pacifism take on militants? For him, he took military strategy and tactics, but applied it to the work of activism and nonviolent action. You know, sometimes we confess pacifism, but really it's a cover-up for our passivism. Passivism shows up when we focus only on spiritual relationships rather than on practical and sacrificial engagement in the face of injustice. Passivism shows up when we stand back and say, well, this is, this is kind of too complex. I'm not quite sure what to think about this. So let's just focus on Jesus. So we don't take any meaningful action at all. Pacifism can be limited by our unwillingness to courageously and sacrificially engage in difficult issues. And as a result, we stand behind this comfort of privilege and a professed conviction of pacifism, and we expect others to take the risk and do the hard work. But that's not true pacifism. Whether it was the courageous Swedish and Danish resistance to Nazis, or the struggle for Indian independence led by Gandhi, or by the struggle, or the struggle for racial reconciliation here in America by Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolence has been a creative and effective force in the world. And this pacifism requires patience and creativity, and at times even physical suffering. Lisa Cahill, in her book, Love Your Enemies, Discipleship, pacifism and just war theory observes how Christian pacifism goes hand in hand with living in community, a serious commitment to community, to embody Jesus's call to life in the kingdom of God as a community. See, in order to live lives of mercy and forgiveness and love towards one another, true pacifism is first formed in this practice of diverse community of Jesus followers not just as individuals, and not just as a theory that we adhere to. It's worked out in these relationships in churches like WCF. You know, for advocates of just war, 
there's another the tension that exists. And it's holding this tension of this in-between by acknowledging that peace and flourishing is sometimes achieved through direct and sometimes violent engagement with perpetrators of injustice and evil. Just war is not just finding a justification for war, but it's in fact to limit when we go to war. Just war seeks to identify injustice and evil through duly authorized decision makers, usually a legitimate government, whose representatives make the difficult decision to engage in conflict because it ideally moves towards an overall peace. At least that's the ideal. See, to make a decision for just war involves incredible discernment to determine a just cause. We must have a just cause to engage in just war. A truly just war intends to reduce the suffering of many at the cost of potential, at the potential cost in suffering and loss of life for few and sometimes not so few. You know, war also seeks to engage in destructive acts. Only, a just war only seeks to engage in destructive acts when uh, it's, those destructive acts are hopefully outweighed by the good to be achieved, and only when all other avenues for peaceful compromise have been exhausted. But in light of the here and not yet part of God's kingdom, in between times of this present life, just war presents significant challenges too. How do we know that all other avenues have been exhausted? And how do we know that they've been given enough time for it to play out before we know it doesn't work? The question is, how far back do we go to determine who has the unfair upper hand in a conflict? During my trip to Israel-Palestine, I asked the Israeli tour guide when the last time Jews had control of the land. And he answered, well, AD 70. I'm like, it's like 2,000 years ago. And it confounded me that their military action over the land could be justified by going back that far in time. You know, attention in just war theory is that we cannot realistically observe true and full justice in this present life of this in-between. And though Augustine advocated for just war, even he admitted that we cannot reliably discern, quote, the presence of justice on one side and its absence on the other side. We don't really see it all. Instead, just war is to be informed by what he calls, called love transformed justice, where sacrificial love for the other is to inform and limit what we can do and when we resort to force. And specifically, this love reminds us that the overriding concern in war must be to protect our neighbors and need. And a war is never just when it's, when it's entered into because of retribution and because of vengeance. In the midst of conflict, this kind of godly love reminds us to limit the harm done to our enemies. So attention that we face, whether in pacifism or in just war theory, is that our knowledge, our motives, our intents are always incomplete and subject to self-interest. Human sinfulness is always present to compromise our decisions about right and wrong. And so we are to hold these tensions and positions with tremendous humility and reverence. 
And several years ago, I had an opportunity to chat with an Air Force pilot as we were both chaperones on a school field trip to Gettysburg. And he and his family are faithful Jesus followers as well. As we shared our stories with one another, uh, we, he talked about his decision to join the military. And like, young, like many young recruits, he entered the Air Force to fly fighter jets. But a wise mentor came to him and said, how might his faith inform military service? You know, after some prayerful consideration, he found himself choosing in the Air Force to fly military transport rather than active combat roles. But he admittedly at the time felt like it was a sacrifice. Yet that decision took him on a path that he did not expect. At the time I spoke with him, he had risen through the ranks of the Air Force to become a colonel who was responsible for Air Force One, serving several presidents throughout his career. You know, hearing the colonel's story reminded me that we don't see all the facts when we make a decision. We don't have the privilege of seeing all events in light of eternity. We don't uh, know how all decisions will play out, no matter how many scenarios we might try to run. But as Jesus followers, we serve and worship a God who does. The living God sees all the facts in light of eternity, and God's knowledge and love surpass, far surpass anything that we could ever imagine in this life. So we can trust God wholeheartedly. And this takes discernment, this takes faith, this takes wise counsel. God's love is moving the trajectory of world history towards this God's end of flourishing peace. And this is what we will look at next week to close off our series. And in order to accomplish this flourishing peace, God makes the ultimate sacrifice when God becomes incarnate in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus takes up, takes sacrificial action. Jesus gives up his life to move the world towards true and lasting peace. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus resolves the problem of the greatest oppression and evil in human history. The problem of sin and its curse of death that infects all human activity. So those who trust and follow Jesus have tremendous hope. We have tremendous hope because of what Jesus has done on the cross. As the words of Jesus say, say uh, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, says, whoever take, take up the cross for the sake of me and for the sake of the kingdom. We follow Jesus in this path of peacemaking, and it's ultimately informed by this cruciform life. This cross-shaped life always invites us to lose our life, to lay down our priorities, to lay down what we think are non-negotiables in our lives for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of God's kingdom. You know, while we might have different means and convictions of how flourishing peace might be accomplished, either through pacifism or just war, but what unites us is a commitment as Jesus' followers, to seek the good of others That's at our sacrifice. Don't seek the good for yourself, but seek the good of others. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know what unites us in this endeavor is hope, is true hope. Hope that God will restore peace 
and the good that he intended since the beginning of creation through God's Son, Jesus. Yet this hope is tempered, uh, this hope tempers our self, selfish interests with humility, with uh, reverence, and with compassion for one another. As we live in this world of in-between, <laughs> this tensions of God's kingdom here, but not fully yet. In God's kingdom, followers of Christ know how the story is going to end. Do you live and move about in the world with this kind of confidence and hope? Because this hope doesn't come from our power to, defend, uh, to defeat injustice and violence. But it, this hope comes from in the power of God's love and goodness revealed in Christ to defeat the power of evil. Whether as a pacifist or as an advocate of just war, or maybe you're somewhere in between, may you find yourselves caught up with Jesus in God's good work of peacemaking in this world. To God's glory and for the good of all. Amen.